Hello, and welcome to the Bear Facts on Health. I'm your host, WGN medical reporter, Dina Bear. This is the podcast that aims to help you take care of your body physically and mentally. I'll give you the facts and up-to-date research on cutting-edge medical treatments, technological advancements helping people heal, tips for diagnosing disease with ease, and advice on exercise and healthy eating. With so much noise and misinformation in the digital space, we aim to help you make informed decisions about your health. And today we tackle the coronavirus. It's named that because under a microscope, it has crown-like spikes on the surface. Corona is Latin for crown. The common cold is a coronavirus. Yet this previously unidentified coronavirus has been the subject of news stories around the world. Great concern among people who fear they may be at risk. It even impacted global financial markets. The global death toll from China's coronavirus is now at 106. Hong Kong is outlawing all train travel to the Chinese mainland. The Centers for Disease Control says the coronavirus has now been confirmed in four states, including here in Illinois, and 26 states have patients who are being tested for that illness. There have been more than 4,500 cases of the virus worldwide so far. Most have been at the epicenter of the outbreak in Wuhan, China. Tens of millions of people are on lockdown across 10 Chinese cities as the coronavirus continues to spread. And those numbers are changing all the time. So should you be worried? And if so, how much? The Centers for Disease Control says it has a strategy for protecting people and preventing the spread. The playbook for responding to an infectious disease outbreak is relatively simple and multi-tiered. You identify cases, isolate people, diagnose them, and treat them. That was Alex Azar, the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services. The numbers in China are on the rise. The virus started in Wuhan, China, and has now spread here to the United States. At the time that we are doing this podcast, about 6,000 people have the virus. Millions in three cities are on lockdown. And the American government chartered a plane to remove American citizens and dignitaries from China. There are about 600 right now dead in China. But as we mentioned, the number's rapidly changing. Here, coronavirus cases have been positively identified in four states so far, five people total, but there are nearly 100 suspected cases in 26 states. But those infected were all people who had been in China and brought the virus here. So joining me now on the Bearfax podcast is Dr. Larry Kosielik from Lurie Children's Hospital. He's a coronavirus and flu expert. But when we talk about this idea of expertise, it's challenging, right? Because we know little about this particular coronavirus, and therein lies the concern. Correct. And so I run our infection control program at Lurie Children's Hospital. I'm the associate medical director of that. And so while it's hard to be a coronavirus expert, I'm an expert on uh, responding to infectious disease threats. And, and so as, as many people across the world are learning more about this, I am too. Uh, but we have... Um, a front row seat with our CDC and our public health department officials, and, and we have systems and teams in place in the hospital to rapidly uh, 
take in this information and make decisions in real time to uh, optimize safety for healthcare workers and, and for our patients and for the general community. I think for most people, the idea that someone's working on containment is a really positive one, but that's the one thing about this coronavirus. People mentioned that containment might be difficult. I mean, there are multiple cases in Germany, for example, that have just been announced that all came from one infected person and then spread and spread and spread. Correct. Every pathogen has its unique ability to spread and cause disease. For example, uh, measles, it, it's so contagious that one person typically will infect 18 others. For coronavirus and flu and other respiratories, it's thought to be uh, roughly two, meaning for every one person that's sick, they'll typically infect two other people. The goal of public health officials and for our hospital and our team is, is to rapidly identify cases and to isolate them uh, so that we uh, minimize the number of secondary cases. Fortunately, that strategy in the U.S. thus far has resulted in, in zero secondary cases. That's very important. That is good. And I want to talk about the flu. You brought that up in just a moment. But first, I, I want to talk about something that I think is particularly scary for people when we think about this virus, and that is that initially it spread to the doctors and the nurses that were treating patients. Is that because it was so early and they weren't taking precautions? Well, your risk is based on exposure. And so if you're a, a physician or a nurse or other healthcare worker in an emergency department or other clinic, particularly this time of the year, uh, you're exposed to a whole lot of people that have respiratory illness. And so what we try to do uh, is, is educate our healthcare providers about how they can minimize risk by wearing masks and, and hand washing and uh, wearing gowns and gloves and eye protection when needed. Uh, and to um, also in ensure that everybody else in the healthcare environment is doing the same thing. We also, in pediatrics, uniquely, uh, you know, have children that sometimes have a hard time containing their respiratory secretions, and so we want to educate patients and, and families, and, and par particularly young children and, and, and people that are visiting them, for how to um, protect themselves. So if they are sick, how they can limit spread of respiratory secretions. And one of the things is obviously, you know, covering up when you're coughing, but there's so much world travel now. And we think about people, you know, you hear somebody coughing next to you and you go, oh boy, protect myself from that person. But can someone who does not have symptoms spread coronavirus? So that is, that is an active area of investigation. It was thought that initially that only symptomatic patients can transmit. Um, there are many viruses, measles and, and chickenpox, for example, that you can easily transmit prior to developing symptoms. Other respiratory virus and, and coronavirus and uh, uh, not exclusive to that, uh, there may be a, a very short period of time that you can transmit prior to developing symptoms, uh, but that's not yet been confirmed. And, and so while, while some news outlets have reported that, uh, our, our uh, local health department and national health department, the CDC, uh, uh, have not yet um, uh, found any evidence of that to be correct. And so uh, we do know that uh, even if there is a possibility of spreading before you have symptoms, asymptomatic people um, across other epidemics have, have not been a very important source for propagating an epidemic of respiratory illness, which is why we really, really focus on symptomatic individuals and uh, getting them care uh, as quickly as, as as we can by getting them into healthcare facilities safety safely so they can be uh, isolated and, and masked appropriately uh, and by um, uh, uh, investigating any potential potential exposures um, to cases so that they can be educated about how they can safely seek care without uh, transmitting the illness. I got several emails here at WGN just today. I got a question from my son who was away at college. I know Miami of Ohio has a case that is suspected. Someone who went home to visit relatives in China came back to school. 
How concerned should parents be when their kids are at school and clearly there are students, international students, coming into the scene and they're all living so closely together? I think in general, anytime we have an infectious disease outbreak, there needs to be a level of concern, and a level of concern is good because that's what um, pushes us to, to um, uh, act mindfully and, and to do things appropriately and to protect ourselves. Uh, but the, the CDC and our local health department here in Chicago ha has uh, strongly reassured us that the general risk to the general population is very low. And so while you should take general measures to protect yourself from respiratory illness, the overall concern for coronavirus right now is, is quite low. And so uh, if, if cases were to be identified, um, the uh, uh, particular risk to those people that w were exposed would be um, investigated and explained to those people. But in, in general, there's a whole lot of measures that are being taken to limit exposures in the first place. Um, they're screening, first of all, um, travel outside of Wuhan, where the, where was the epicenter of the outbreak uh, has been restricted. And so that'll limit the uh, number of people um, traveling outside uh, of China that are potentially infected. Um, further, um, there are several airports across the U.S. I believe uh, it was 20 on my last estimate. I know O'Hare was one of the early ones uh, that that's screening travelers from chi from China for illness. Uh, and if they're ill, they're being isolated. If they're not, they're being educated on what to do if they do become ill. So I want to talk to you about that particular screening. Are they doing swabs or are they just looking for symptoms? How are we testing people before they're coming into this country? That's a great question. So first, uh, the, the primary method of screening is to assess for symptoms. And so asking about respiratory symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, uh, and to do a, uh, a, a an objective fever screen, actually checking uh, travelers for fever. Uh, and if they have signs of illness, uh, at least in Chicago, they're sent to a local healthcare facility where they would be tested. Uh, so the CDC is working on, so we've already, the CDC has already developed a, a very accurate test for identifying this novel coronavirus. It's a test that's not available to healthcare facilities yet, but they're working on deploying that to uh, state health departments where, where uh, patients have been identified in the four states where you mentioned, and also working on having that test immediately available in the airports where they're, where they're doing screening. And so that, that's just one. Um, and, and the reason that's been able to happen is because the, the, the uh, Ministry of Health in China, uh, where they've learned a great deal about how to diagnose and, and test for this virus, they've openly shared that information with other countries, um, you know, public health officials. So the CDC has been able to very... Uh, um, uh, quickly develop that and hopefully that'll be deployed to airports soon where we can, you know, rapidly identify patients that are uh, infected with coronavirus um, versus other patients who may be infected with other seasonal viruses. There's dozens of them that can cause disease this time of year. You talked about some of the signs, a high fever, maybe some respiratory. Are there other signs that are particular to coronavirus versus, say, the common cold or the flu or this coronavirus versus a cold or the flu? Yeah, when we're talking about the respiratory tract, we typically split it into two, the upper tract and the lower tract. Common cold is, is the upper tract, typically uh, perhaps a little bit of cough, but more runny nose uh, and headache and, and potentially sore throat um, with or without fever. Lower respiratory tract illness, so you're talking about getting in, into the, uh, the lower airways and the lungs, and that typically, uh, particularly with coronavirus and other epidemic um, uh, respiratory viruses, causes more severe illness. And so um, the cough would typically be more pronounced, and, and patients may have uh, varying degrees of, of shortness of breath. Uh, the most severe illness will um, have significant shortness of breath that might result in uh, in requiring uh, respiratory support, even uh, potentially intubation for our sickest patients. 
Let's talk about, you brought it up before, and that is the flu. In this country so far, 15 million people have been diagnosed with the flu. 140,000 were hospitalized. More than 8,000 have died. When we compare those numbers, I guess the obvious question is, why are we so concerned about this coronavirus, which killed maybe 100 people, when clearly we are more at risk from the flu? That's a really great point, and I, I think uh, for me that that's one point that I've really tried to uh, uh, reinforce. And, and sometimes, you know, when, when these re- these outbreaks happen, that causes a lot of concern, right? We see uh, lots of headlines. Um, uh, we see uh, images of healthcare workers overseas that are uh, in full isolation garb, and and uh, uh, that that causes a whole lot of anxiety. And, and I think that impairs uh, the general public's ability to assess burden and risk. And and so. Um, with this level of concern, I, I think it's always really important to refocus that uh, and, and help people understand that the, the real risks and the real burdens that are here at home. And uh, influenza is a great example. 15 million cases were, were the numbers that I think are, are probably about a week or two old already, and so the numbers are certainly higher. Uh, and, and while this flu season may be a, a bit worse than other seasons, um, it, we have millions of flu infections every single year and we have thousands of deaths every single year and and several dozen to several hundred children die of influenza every single year and and I like to to remind people that um, despite um, this ongoing um, public health issue with with these novel viruses and there are a lot whole lot of things we can do here to prevent our risk uh, from developing flu and to limit the complications of flu uh, like getting your seasonal flu vaccine from your healthcare provider. Let's talk about how it spreads. Do the flu and coronavirus spread in the same way? So that, that's a great question. And so when we talk about spread of diseases, there's there's several modes. And um, you know, for example, viruses that cause diarrhea are typically transmitted through through hands or, or direct exposure to um, uh, to stool or other um, bodily fluids. Ebola. That's uh, typically how Ebola was thought to spread through direct contact with, with secretions. Uh, respiratory illnesses tend to spread by, w- by one of two routes, depending on how far the particles that are infected can travel. And so most respiratory viruses tend to transmit by what we call respiratory droplets. And so you cough uh, and those droplets spread, and they typically don't go f- further than three to six feet. And so if you're more than three to six feet away from a patient who has uh, an illness that's spread by these respiratory droplets, you're, you're pretty safe. Um, now, some, depending on the virus, those vi- when you cough and those droplets fall on a surface, that virus may survive. It's thought that flu you know, can survive, you know, several hours, maybe up to 24 hours on a surface, uh, even without cleaning it. And then after that, um, uh, it's, it's not going to survive. But then it has to get into your body. So exactly. you touch that surface, you get some flu virus on your hands, and then you touch your own nose, mouth, and you've introduced it into your body. Or eyes, exactly. And so wh- whether if somebody you're within three to six feet of somebody and they cough those droplets and if they uh, make contact with your eyes or mucous membranes that they can cause infection or if you um, you know somebody coughs on a doorknob and you touch it immediately thereafter and don't wash your hands and then you know put your hand in your nose your mouth or your eyes you can infect yourself so that's typically the way respiratory viruses spread now there's also an airborne route and what airborne means is that um, the uh, infected particles um, don't drop quickly and so they're lighter and they can be suspended in air for a prolonged period of time. Measles is, is sort of one of the classic airborne viruses, meaning uh, if I was in this if I was the only person in this room right now and I had measles and I coughed and I left and a half hour later you came into this room, 
in, in, we weren't even in the same building at the same time, you can still contract measles. And that, wow. that's what we call uh, airborne transmission. And that's why measles is, is so uh, highly transmissible. With these, with these epidemic respiratory viruses, uh, we typically don't know early on if it's spread by droplets uh, uh, or airborne. And so out of an abundance of caution, our, our general practice is to uh, operate uh, if they were spread by the airborne route and take uh, additional precautions to limit transmission. So do masks help? So what we're doing currently in the CDC is recommending is uh, using masks, but we use a special kind of mask called, a, called an N95 respirator or a, um, uh, a uh, other devices that um, uh, uh, provide a, a greater degree of protection than a, than a normal surgical mask. And so that would prevent um, exposure to infected particles that are, that are spread in that airborne fashion. And so... Um, we, that that's done out of an abundance of caution. Uh, my sense is that probably surgical masks do limit transmission. And if we had patients in a, in a hospital you know, who presented to a healthcare facility that were coughing and we suspected had a, a respiratory virus, we would put a, a mask on them uh, to um, uh, uh, protect uh, them from uh, expelling those those infected um, droplets in, into the environment. Um, but uh, out of an abundance of caution, we feel that the this more more aggressive approach in putting these N95 masks provides the the uh, optimal amount or the, the, ex the most extensive respiratory protection. When you talk about the spread of things like flu, certainly, and the coronavirus, what is the threshold for going to the emergency room? Because sometimes I think you're going into a place where you have many, many sick people who might be coughing and might be spreading things. So how long can we stay home? And when do we know I need to seek medical attention? Yeah, that, that's a really great question, and I think that's really personalized to the individual and, and depending on what your general resources are and your, your general health. Um, you know, certainly if you're elderly or a young infant, your threshold for going to an emergency room may be different. Um, but um, if we're just talking about um, routine, you know, seasonal respiratory viruses, it's based on, um, you know, the level of support you need. If, if you are um, uh, dehydrated and you're, you're, you're not, you know, going pee every you're urinating every six hours. Um, typically, we would advise those um, patients to go and be evaluated for um, uh, IV fluids because they may not be they may be losing uh, a lot of fluid um, related to their fever uh, and um, not taking in a whole lot of fluids because um, they're coughing or they have um, you know so much illness that they that they just can't keep up with the amount of fluids that they're losing. Um, if you if the um, uh, cough is leading to shortness of breath, or if you have shortness of breath without cough, certainly you may require um, uh, increasing le levels of respiratory support, be it um, uh, just a little bit of oxygen or something more significant. And so uh, sh certainly shortness of breath, um, dehydration, um, um, for parents uh, and children, fever that's, that's not being controlled by um, uh, Tylenol or Motrin or some other uh, medicine given for fever sometimes uh, requires evaluation in emergency department as well. While these viruses themselves cause illness, um, you can get secondary infections from bacteria that are that normally live uh, in our airways in our body and normally don't cause infection under normal conditions, but after a viral infection can lead to pneumonia or um, bloodstream infections or, or, or sometimes worse. Uh, and so, um, uh, any. any Distress related to that um, certainly would require evaluation. If you're immunocompromised, you have you have a, your immune system doesn't work it would be either because you're um, you were born with immunodeficiency or you have a condition like HIV or AIDS or cancer or some other condition that requires you to weaken your immune system to control that. Um, respiratory illnesses in those patients typically um, there's a lower threshold to go to the emergency department for that. 
I can, if, I, if I can clarify one more point, though, if sure. you are, if you do have travel to China in the last two weeks, or you have um, exposure to somebody who you suspect may have had the novel coronavirus based on their uh, travel history, um, the threshold to go to the emergency room is somewhat different. And we do want to advise pati patients and in, in to know that if, if they do suspect that they are infected with the novel coronavirus, that they don't just unannounced show up at a healthcare facility, um, because um, we want to plan in advance and, and make sure that we would, you know, meet those patients uh, prior to entering the facility and mask them and try to figure out a way to bring them in safely to, to your point, to limit any transmission that could occur in a healthcare facility. So you're talking very serious things. I want to talk about something that is so simple. You, you mentioned the flu vaccine can help prevent getting the flu, but let's talk about hand washing. People think, oh, that's so simple. It doesn't really work. Explain why it really does work when we're trying to prevent the spread of infection, bacterial, viral. Yeah, um, I mean, hand washing is a, I mean, we've known for a very, very, very long time that, that washing our hands and, and limiting the, the burden of microbes on our hands um, limits the uh, ability for those things to spread. I mean, we're humans, we, we crave interaction, we shake hands, we, we hug, we do these things. Um, th this is exactly why um, during uh, holidays we see increased respiratory illness because people come together and, you know, if you have a little bit of a cold, you're not going to miss, um, you know, your, your Christmas or, or other, you know, religious holiday celebration around that time of the year. And, and so um, uh, we know that that's how um, uh, illnesses can spread. So, so s just a simple um, uh, strategy like hand washing, if you had been coughing into your mouth or you have a, a, a diarrheal illness and you had, um, you know, viruses or bacteria in your hands related to um, using the restroom just by uh, either washing with soap and water or, or using an alcohol-based hand gel, which I saw at the entrance of the building today, um, th those strategies can, can help um, limit that microbial burden on your hands and, and limit the, the spread of uh, disease. It's great to have your expertise, but I know you wanted our listeners to know that with regard to this particular unidentified coronavirus, things are rapidly changing. Yes, and this, this, they're going to continue to rapidly change. And, and so early on in an epidemic, there's a lot of really basic information that we don't know. For example, where did it come from? Why did all of a sudden, I mean, this had to start with one human typically, um, and, and, and did it start with one human or was there a different source? And so with a lot of these novel respiratory viruses, flu and coronavirus in particular, um, animals can harbor these viruses. And um, as animals harbor these viruses, these viruses can mutate and that changes the ability for those viruses that are typically limited to animals to spread to humans. Uh, sometimes um, like bird flu, for example, even though it's, it's infected humans, it hasn't had an ability to spread between humans. Um, certainly now we've known that coronavirus, not only um, can humans be infected from animals, but humans can infect each other. And that wasn't known very early on. It's a very basic uh, aspect of an epidemic. And so as we, as we learn these things, um, our, our approach changes. And so things that we really need to understand is, is how much transmission occurs before patients are symptomatic. It's thought to be very little right now, uh, but our public health officials are working very, very hard to determine that. Um, I think really the most important thing right now is that um, uh, although the, the Ebola uh, epidemic worldwide w was quite unfortunate, there's one thing that, that 
what was uh, very important that happened from that, and, and that's worldwide cooperation of, of public health bodies and, and um, uh, the U.S. working very closely with, with um, public health officials throughout the world to, to generate a rapid response. And so because of those efforts from 2014 to 2016, um, our country, our healthcare facilities, the city of Chicago in particular, we have a, a, a collaborative public health effort in the city of Chicago that's been recognized nationally uh, for, for how well we work together and how quickly we can um, bring together academic hospitals, community hospitals, public health officials, um, paramedics, um, uh, police forces, and, and, and uh, first responders uh, together to respond to an outbreak. And, and, and we're seeing the, um, uh, the, the benefits of that preparation now in our ability to, to rapidly respond and, and educate and, and prevent secondary cases, which we've done, I think, a good job from so far. Which is great because certainly the emergence of a new coronavirus can be scary, but really knowledge is power. Dr. Larry Kosiolik from Lurie Children's, thank you so much for the education and advice on staying healthy. Thank you. I hope this week's podcast was helpful to you. Remember, you can subscribe to the Bear Facts on Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dina Bear. Until next week, take care of yourself and be well.